Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board. Farm Credit Services of America, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, PIC North America, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. I'm Matthew Rota, your host, and today we're going to talk about Streptococcus zoepidemicus with Dr. Ryan Tenbergen and Dr. Mateus costa how are you guys doing today very good thank you good thanks for the invite so i had the opportunity to oh it was may of last year i was in manitoba and in two separate meetings in alberta where the demeter premier and premium team were meeting with their producers talking about things they should know about and i think i heard this presentation on strep zoo like three or four or maybe five times within three days and so <laughs> uh by the time i finished that trip i felt like i had a decent understanding of what this was and then i wanted to talk about it with people and most people had no clue what i was talking about and then i was kind of concerned that they were hearing it for the first time from me because i was like what am i telling them that's wrong <laughs> so i'm excited yeah. to do this episode because this has been fairly fascinating learning about this and uh really appreciate your time before we get into that i'd love it if you guys could both talk about what you do today and how you got involved with the swine industry and i'd love to start with mateus all right uh that is a funny story after all so what do i do today um not a lot <laughs> uh, i'm a assistant professor at the western college of vet med so i like to think that i well first of all i'm parent to two girls and a boy. So that is a large portion <laughs> of what I do today. Um, and actually a dog and two cats as well. But other than that, I hopefully am contributing to train the next generation of Canadian veterinarians. And on my spare time, I do a little bit of research on swine health. So I'm, I'm mostly puzzled by diseases that, you know, we have had for a while and the only thing we can do about them is antibiotics. It, it really bugs me, right? It's been, um, science has been around in, in swine production for a while. What's preventing us from having better solutions? Um, how I got into the swine industry is actually a funny story. I didn't plan this, that's for sure. I When I got into vet school, I wanted to be a wildlife slash zoo vet. <laughs> Quickly figured out that was not going to work. And then I switched to equine um, and I am way too outspoken for that. I would not be able to have clients for longer than a week. <laughs> so I was getting into research and I was, you know, lucky enough to be allowed to leave Brazil where I was, uh, where I did my vet school and went to University of Minnesota to work with Dr. Simone Oliveira. So for those of you who are old enough, 
to remember her. Uh, her and Carlos Pijuan uh, both uh, pioneered molecular bacteriology in North America. So I went there and, you know, I got bitten by the swine bug. Uh, spent eight months working with her. And since then, I hasn't left. So this is how I got into swine. Where, where are you from in Brazil? I'm from this um, tiny little town with 4 million people called Belo Horizonte. So it's, it's not Rio. It's Sao Paulo. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's right in between Rio and Sao Paulo, but it's neither of those. Uh, but, you know, has the greatest weather of anywhere else I have been on planet Earth. It, it's just always nice and warm. Nothing like Canada, I'll tell you that. Yeah, one of my best friends is from there, and he would always say Belo Horizonte or something like that. And yeah, that's it, right? And yeah, I, was that's the, I, had, I have to fake my accent so people understand. So, who is this person? Because I probably know them because we joke about it. it's a formula, <laughs> but you go to the mall, you will know everybody there because it's kind of like countryside but big city. So, I bet you if it's in the swine industry and from Belo Horizonte, I must know them. <laughs> yeah, and I, I tried looking it up on a map, and I'm like, where is Belo Horizonte? This doesn't make any sense. And then I see, like, Belo Horizonte, and <laughs> and, and I was like, yo, the, come on. Like, <laughs> you're kidding me. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. Yeah, well, Brazilians are like a plague. We're everywhere now. Can't get rid of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and uh, such big personalities, too. So I can, I can see where you're saying uh, you're a little more outspoken in the equine world. But I got to know how you got from the zoo to pigs was interesting. But why why was the zoo not practical? I'm really curious about that. Um, Very few and limited opportunities in Brazil. And, and the research side of it, you know, I got, I think I was just one of those annoying students that, you know, was constantly asking questions and it didn't make sense when they were like, well, we don't know. That's just how we do it or something like that. Hmm. So wildlife and zoo medicine is not there yet. Is There's not a lot of funding either. So it was just a combination of, you know, production is interesting and Hey, there's a lot of opportunity to yeah. explore this question. So it, you know, put one and two together and here I am. What about you, Ryan? What do you do today, and how did you get into the swine industry? Yeah, so I'm just a basic swine vet. So I, uh, yeah, grew up in small town Ontario here in Canada, and I was that typical vet, you know, that that vet hopeful that wanted to go to vet school and do small animal, and that's what I thought I wanted to do. And it's kind of I, I find it curious listening to stories of how people get into into pigs because I think. Uh, but Chase, you kind of said it there, that that swine bug. I think that that hits a lot of people. And it's kind of interesting to hear the different backgrounds of that. Like I, I'm from a practice with four vets that are local, like working together in the same building. And three of them come from cities, right? Two from Toronto, one <laughs> come from Columbia in a larger city. But yeah, I, did, I think it's something you just kind of find and fall in love with. So yeah, that's kind of how what happened to me i did a masters in in swine uh before vet school i worked on the on the farms during that time doing my research and i just really loved it i got to meet the people um i got to kind of see what the industry is all about and then yeah i kind of never looked back from there so yeah i graduated about eight years ago i also have three young kids at home so i can understand the busy life of that and the fun life of that um, yeah, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's just something you find and fall in love with. Why, why small animal? What was drawing you to that? 
it's, it's dog. you know it's it's yeah dogs dog lover never been a cat guy but i think it's just it's there it's a lot of young you know people i mean i think veterinary work it's it's thought of by a lot of people something that's you know it's something you want to do you get to help animals right so i i, I just fell in that group right i think there's a gotcha. lot of us so gotcha. um not so much as far as that find those niche markets but yeah that, that was kind of me that's that was my plan when i was whatever 18 or however old i was awesome so to start this conversation off around streptococcus zooepidemicus, which I'm just going to start calling Zep or strep zoo. It's a little easier. Mm -hmm. uh, strep zoo. Mateus, could you tell us a little bit about strep zoo and what it is and how it functions? Oh, a little bit. That's hard. I'll try to emphasize. I think the most important thing we need to know as an industry about strep zoo is Strep zoo has no limits, right? We we know when we talk about strep, you're in the barn and you say, oh, it's strep, right? You're talking about strep suis, right? The name indicates strep suis, mostly pigs. You know, we see the odd case uh, in humans when the right, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you may develop disease. But in general, strep zoo is everywhere. It's called zoo epidemicus because it can infect the whole zoo, essentially. It doesn't discern, right? It doesn't matter if you are a dog, a pig, a lizard. It's very adaptable and it's very successful in doing that. So strep zoo is, again, it's a multi-host or multi-species bacterium. It doesn't always cause disease, but if given the right conditions, it will. And it's often what we call epidemic outbreaks. So it's it's something very aggressive and and ugly to see because it will lead to very severe disease, high mortality outbreaks very quick because it's, it's, it's a pathogen that has, again, because it's so complex and adaptable, what it does is it has this multitude of, of tools or multitude of weapons. And a lot of them do the same thing, but they just do it differently. You know, it's as if you had five SUVs at home and you just drove one each day and no one would be able to recognize who you are. That's kind of how it works. It has all these different weapons and the immune system is trying to go around and say, who is this? I've seen the other one before, but I haven't seen this one. Can't defend against this one. So it's very successful in fooling the immune defense and, and causing disease. And the take-home message is we don't know enough yet about strep zoo in pigs, or to be quite honest, in, in the majority of the veterinary species. I think the only one that we understand a bit more are horses because of strangles and how strep zoo can cause uh, you know, a, a disease in undistinguishable form from strangles. But it's essentially strep zoo's little cousin, strep equi equi, that causes strangle, right? So strep equi equi is nothing but a very well adapted strep zoo. It, that's exactly what it is. They're both actually the same species. Both are strep equi, but one piece of strep zoo epidemicus became so adapted to horses that it became its own subspecies. And now we call that thing strep equi equi. While strep zoo epidemicus and all the other, you know, cousins in the family, they still infect a range of, of different animals. So 
we know a lot about you know strep equi equi and strep zooepidemicus in horses but in the, in the other species you know dogs pigs um camelids llamas it's a big issue there so we we don't we're we're essentially navigating it blind and that's what happened to us you know in the past three four years when we first broke so you've had some of this in canada it's been very limited but can you talk about when you say aggressive epidemic what do you mean can you put some numbers to that from a mortality standpoint and and maybe you and ryan could you dive into what this looked like on a farm and, and how they navigated it and uh what were the biosecurity parameters all that all that fun stuff I'll let Ryan tell you what he saw on the outbreak he managed from, you know, a day-to-day mortality perspective. And I'll, I'll pitch in with the other experiences I've had, but I think he has a very graphic description. Yeah, it's something. There's a few things you never forget in your career, and that's going to be one that I won't forget, that's for sure. And the funny thing is it's always on a long weekend. Like, I don't know what it is, but <laughs> I, I think this was Thanksgiving or something. But I'm pretty sure it was a Sunday on the long weekend that I got the call. Um, and this is a small farm. It was only about 200 sows, so I, I would consider that that small here. Um, and he had, I think, three sows dead on that day, right? And and I think uh, the previous day, maybe he had another two. So like for such a small farm, this was just a sudden increase in the amount of dead sows. So obviously he gives a call. Um, so I went out... Uh, I went out that day because just because of that sudden increase and we did some post-mortem on some sows. And I think the most noticeable thing in the farm when you walk in, aside from the obvious dead sows laying in the alleyway, is just how sick and how quiet the sows are. So um, it's it's pretty remarkable when you can walk down a row of sows and you can just kind of see that, you know, almost half of them, I would say, just for, for I guess, from my memory, were off feed, right? So you can tell that they, they have a runny nose, their eyes are red, they're, they're laying down, they're not eating, like they just feel sick. Um, and I think one of the most important things with this disease too is just how quickly it ends up killing the pig too. Um, Mateus, you'll have to kind of comment as far as uh, more of what you've seen in, in different ages, but as far as in sows, I mean, it, it's kind of a fact of if you, if you see her off feed and showing signs of sickness the one day, you can try and treat her, but if you don't treat her, the next day she's definitely going to be dead. So it acts really quick. It's really severe. Um, this farm in particular, as far as numbers, so uh, it was in October, or so like I said, uh, about when they when they had that first uh, that first amount of deaths there, and I think within the three month period, we always annualize sow mortality. It's just kind of what we do. So it's a gen- so it's kind of a a, a more uh, I guess a stable parameter measure across different farms. So it ended up being forty percent sow mortality mm-hmm. in those three months, right? So. We're talking on, you know, a, a sow farm of 200 sows, and in a year you're gonna you're gonna lose just under 100 of them, right? So, it's it's aggressive, and it re- it really came in 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 waves too, right? So we get we'd have our wave of, of mortalities. Maybe we end up losing 18, 20 sows. We'll get them treated. Everything seems okay, and then kind of I don't know a month, six weeks later, boom, it starts again. And I think that that's the most frustrating part with this disease is just that it seems like the treatment really doesn't cure it. And I guess that's more of what we're trying to learn from it too. So I don't know if Mateus, you kind of have a couple comments on what I've said there. Well, well, real quick before, before Mateus hops in. Yeah. It sounded like if you treat it, you can 
subside the symptoms, but the moment you stop treating, it's like immediately back. Is that what you For seen? sure. For sure. Yeah. And and I don't know, I don't know if I can tell you an exact, you know, treatment success rate, but I would, I don't think I'm out of line to say that, you know, 50%, even those that you're treating, this producer did a lot of mass needling with antibiotics to try and slow it down. And we still had a lot of deaths. Well, I'll, I'll comment on this as we're talking about treatment is to be successful in treating animals in a controlled laboratory condition. You know, they were checked every four hours so that we could pick it up early enough. And they needed two to three treatments of Ceftiofur. So, you know, mm-hmm. we're coming from Susan Brockmeyer and Sam Howell in, at the USDA, but it was very aggressive and, and prolonged treatments to be able to successfully save those animals. And what that speaks is from a farm perspective, you're going to lose a lot of animals because as Ryan pointed out, it's, it's not one of those things that you just go there, give them a shot or even put it in the feed and you're good to go. It's, it's the, the strain we had in Canada. It was extremely aggressive to that point, right? That treatment is not that efficient. And the other thing we observed was resistance, right? It's a bacteria. So we live in the antimicrobial resistance era. That is the current pandemic we're facing, even though it's not making the news every night. Uh, we all need to be aware of that because it may come a day where you need to go get, you know, some sort of dental cleaning and you can't because if you end up needing antibiotics, it's not going to work. So resistance yeah. in during one of our strep zoo outbreaks was surprisingly quick i'm talking about within three months of the initial isolate we had resistance to three of the of the different compounds we're using to try to suppress the disease and it goes exactly like ryan said right you put in antibiotics you try to control it and you kind of do until you don't until you remove it and it explodes on your face again because it's still there it, it doesn't go away that easily. And again, it lives in different animals. So pests are a great reservoir. And to bring a bit more, to steer the pot a little bit more, we also just recently learned that humans could be carriers. So, you know, us as veterinarians, you know, staff and integrated barns, they could be shifted around between barns. And that is an issue. So all of that comes together, making this a bit more complicated than we wish it was. Yeah, we were hearing about one story where a farm actually depopped, mm-hmm. cleaned, got it again, depopped, mm-hmm. cleaned, got it again, depopped, cleaned, got it again. And then they found out that the people were the carriers in a lot of cases. And so then they had to put them on antibiotics to help clear up that. And it, I don't know if you guys know about that scenario or that story and if you can i'd love it if you expanded on it but it's crazy yeah yeah i mean i luckily uh, depop at the end of the day i think depop is the only solution we have to this today um like i said we tried but it ended up just moving into the grow finish and then just significant mortality and grow finish too right so we're talking you know 40 pigs dead in, in the morning, like we're talking significant Jeez. mortality in the finishing barn. And the same thing there, you'll treat it, 
it seems good for a while and then boom, you have another outbreak. Um, so yeah, luckily our depopulation worked. Um, yeah, there was a lot of questions. So, you know, strep zooepidemicus, the uh, kind of what Matthias said too, living in rodents, you know, surviving in soils, things like that. So, you know, we do the best we can as far as we can for rodent control and trying to clean up around the barn and make sure there's nothing that we can potentially bring back in. But at the end of the day, it's, yeah, you, you do the best you can, right? So it's a, it's a tough thing. So how should yeah. producers think? Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to add that. That story about the, the, the human being the vector there. So I was involved in that investigation. And to clarify, there was a retrospective investigation. So we... We are, the outbreaks had already happened. We already knew, you know, the, that depopulation has failed. And, you know, there was not just one barn. It was multiple barns that were depopulated. And I remember that two of them at least rebroke after the first trial. And I'm talking about, you know, very well-executed depopulations where you walk around and you, you, you know, skim through feeders and behind walls and you go through all of that trying to make sure everything's clean and it is so in that perspective what we noticed is there was a missing link and there was a missing link as well as why is this thing coming to canada now and not in the past 50 years right i think one thing that is interesting is a piece of history um in the 1970s china had a incredibly catastrophic strep zoo outbreak. 300,000 pigs dead is what is reported in the literature. And that specific strep zoo, we call it now ST-194, just because we had to give it a name. But that specific type of strep zoo is the one that we have in Canada uh, and the initial outbreaks, right? Mm. So it's puzzling, right? Why 50 years later, this thing decided to swim across the Pacific and not a year earlier, you know, what, what made it special now? So we just could not wrap our heads around because some of the barns that broke, I'm talking about, you know, facilities isolated in Western Canada with no hog operations around, you know, for kilometers, nothing, you know, high biosecurity, good biosecurity, good management. So it's hard to explain, right? How do, how do you come to your client and say, yeah, you know, you guys, your biosecurity is bad because you know it isn't. It's, it's hard to figure out. So three or four years after the initial breaks, we decided to test uh, indirectly some of the staff. And one of the ways we did that is by testing masks. So we took the filters from um, N95 masks and PCR that because that's our thing we learned now is that for those of you out there who may be interested in looking for a strap zoo, culture is a good way of starting it. So bacterial culture when sent to the lab, but you may miss it. And there is many reasons why you may miss it. It may be because the bacterium is not viable by the time it gets to the lab. To sometimes, um, I don't think that's the case in Canadian labs, but not every lab is able to identify strap zoo so it may end up calling it Streptococcus or even sometimes Strepsuis. It's erroneously identified as Strepsuis just because it really, it really looks like Strepsuis from a bacteriology perspective. And the clinical signs are kind of, hey, pigs are dying, just, you know, sudden death, who knows what's this, looks like Streptococcus, must be Strepsuis. 
So culture was not the key. PCR was the key. And then we PCR those masks and we learned that um, some of those were positives, but very weak positives. So we we were guessing this could just be from the environment, right? You walk around the barn in a mask and you get dirty. And then we actually did swabs. We swabbed people. And that's where we closed the loop and said, well, some people are positive for strep zoo. The very same strain isolated in oh, the wow. Yeah, and pigs are the very same one that, you know, similar to the one isolated in China in the 70s. And people were healthy. There, this, this particular individual did not report any sort of, you know, illness in the past three years. And, and we know that this individual carried it around for at least three years. So it's a big, um, it's a big red flag, right? And sorry to keep going on here, but it's a red, red Those flag. Is interesting. It, good. At least someone finds interest other than me. <laughs> uh, but it's a it's a big red flag from two perspectives. Uh, one is for strep zoo itself. Hey, if we can carry it around, and go around spreading it, it's hard to prevent that, right? You can only go so far with biosecurity today. Uh, but what we have, you know, what we think we have learned from that is strep zoo lives in people, right? It is something that is able to replicate inside us or in, you know, in our noses and doesn't disappear. If this thing was present somewhere in China or Southeast Asia in the past 40 years, and it flew all the way here in a person, and a person eventually found a pig in Canada and gave it to that pig, there's nothing to believe or to make us not believe that uh, African swine fever has not done the same yet. But luckily for us, African swine fever virus does not live inside humans, right? If you, if I spray you with ASF today, it's likely that by today or by the end of the day today or tomorrow, you have cleared it up just because the virus can't do anything on you. It just kind of disappears. So it's likely though that we have African swine fever virus in Canada. It came to the land. It just, it wasn't quick enough to find a pig, right? So that's that's scary, right? To think about it this way. Um, it's it's a good way for the industry to be aware that, you know, it, it could be closer than we think it is. Uh, don't let your biosecurity guard down because we you don't want to be the first one to have it, right? Yeah, and we're, and we're of, bigger carriers yeah. than just needing to take a shower. It, it can live in us for a period of time. Yeah. And one, one other comment on that too, just because you brought up African swine fever, I mean, as far as from a vet perspective of clinical presentation of the two, I mean, sudden onset of mortality, some of the post-mortem findings would be the same. Um, you know, that would cause a bit of a headache here as far as if, if we had more outbreaks, just, just the amount of foreign animal disease investigations that would potentially happen because of that. I mean, they look very similar as far as presentation. <clears throat> They get that purple yeah. blotching, right? Yeah. yeah, it's it's really it's big spleens. I mean, you get a lot of. Uh, I mean, they turn septic. There's a lot of uh, a lot more of blood flow, so things look more red. You don't get so much of the bleeding, but I mean, there's lots of similarities. The the big mortality is the biggest one, right? All of a sudden, to have so much mortality, that's a huge flag for foreign animal disease. Yeah, and you know, in fact, like every time we do controlled trials with strep zoo or we see cases in the field you you can't distinguish unless you send samples to the lab 
you mm-hmm. can't say this is African swine fever or this is straps of epidemic. It could be both. You know, it's a black mm-hmm. box. So the lab tells mm-hmm. you what it is. So good point. So if I'm a producer, am I running and am I swabbing all my employees? <laughs> am I, <laughs> what am I doing? How should I react to this? How should I think about this? Is this something I should be informed about or something I should be quite concerned about? Informed. As a producer, I think your job is be aware. Your employees, if they are just living their lives, going around, doing what they're doing, if they were to, you know, let's put it this way, be carriers of strep zoo, you would already know by now because you'd have broken with that. But the challenge is not your regular staff, right? Because these people, they know what they're doing. They're coming in every day, doing their chores, moving on. The challenge is those visitors, right? So has this particular person been somewhere or happened to have visited, you know, uh, or have, you know, a farm, a different farm somewhere else, or even, you know, interact with different animals. They may have, you know, a pet, who knows, a pet horse, a pet nama, or something like that. And this person is visiting your barn. They don't work there. I, in my opinion, those are the higher risk uh, humans when it comes to strep zoo, because people who are there in your barn every day, they would have brought it in by now. But if someone, you know, was traveling for work uh, and this place happened to be endemic for a strep zoo, they, you know, the person is healthy, but then they come back and happen to want to visit your barn because you have amazing, um, you know, numbers of piglets per cell per year. And they just come to learn what you're doing and they have to sneeze inside the barn and they sneeze. And, you know, that's where it may all Boom. start. So I, you need to be aware and perhaps biosecurity. I know that some of the barns that had to go through Strap Zoo already changed some of their biosecurity um, approaches because of that. So in my opinion, I don't know if Ryan agrees with me, is if, if you're a producer, be informed and obviously talk to your herd health veterinarian about what can we do different to make sure we're not the next ones, right? Yeah, Ryan, yeah, can you add some thoughts, but also maybe add in yeah. uh, not only because you got some really good ideas there about security, but what is the biosecurity practices? I mean, do I, is it two weeks downtime? Is it if you've been to a country or a place with it, you got to go get an antibiotic? Like, what is the practical biosecurity protocol that people are thinking about right now? Do you know what? I don't, I don't know if I can give you a straight answer. I mean, Mateus kind of mentioned that it can live in someone for three years, right? So, so how do we, how do we protect against that? Right. I think, I think we have great biosecurity principles right now, you know, different downtimes and showers and things like that. I mean, I think we need to control what we can control and do a good job of that. Um, yeah, but as far as you know, going around swabbing everyone that comes into your farm, it's probably it's probably not practical, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I think the only thing, and we are not there yet, unless perhaps if you are a you know genetic nucleus, and obviously there's a different ball game, then there may be some screening steps you could take, right? Ask the right questions, right? Have you been somewhere? Uh, that is potentially problematic. Uh, we know that it survives for at least you know two to three years in humans. So I don't think anyone's going to have a three-year downtime. Um, mm. it's, at the end of the well, day, get, <laughs> yeah. that's, get, a career, I, that, that's a whole yeah. job for some. <laughs> <laughs> so 
But Dave, I was going to ask you how much, uh, I don't know if you can answer this or not, but of, of the investigations of outbreaks that you've been closely involved with, how many do you think have been associated or maybe suggestive of a human exposure to the barn? Great question. Uh, the one that we have evidence is only one. Okay. Um, so it's that, that's the one we have evidence and I can tell you this, this one, and it was, you know, an integrator. So it did spread mm-hmm. to at least three different premises. Mm-hmm in the same outbreak let's put it this way and then pigs were the culprits in in the other ones and but the majority of them right we don't know to be quite honest it's kind of like mm-hmm. hmm, how do we get this it, you know it could be could not be that we're people but we don't know because mm-hmm. you know we're not looking before it happens and by the time it happens your main concern is not to swab people it's to keep the animals alive right mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, just from my perspective, I mean, disease disease investigations are often unrewarding when you're trying to figure out how some of these viruses and bacteria get in. But for my specific case, I mean, I, we can't say that it's human-related, but there was a component there that potentially explains it, right? Maybe there's a few other things, but yeah, that, that was definitely on our mind when we started looking at this. In, in your case, I remember talking to the producer and we kind of discussed mm-hmm. That there was a component there but on the other mm-hmm. hand i think that at the same timeline there were outbreaks in eastern us as well so i think pennsylvania and um tennessee i think too sorry mm-hmm. i think tennessee as well yeah so i think they kind of had breaks in at somewhat similar time although you know movement doesn't really you know animal movement doesn't really make sense but who knows right if that was the case it's, it's again it's hard it's as you said it's unrewarded and for producers listening, we're only talking about a couple couple dozen cases, right? We're not talking about this going all over the place at a, at a high degree. It's fairly mm. spotty, right? In Canada, yes. Uh, in the past three years, I've been collecting information on that. So there's been outbreaks everywhere in the planet. So all five continents, including including Australia, in the past you know three years, reported outbreaks of strep zoo. Uh, and when I say including Australia and New Zealand, is those countries, you know, they are in the it's a different ball game, right? They're they're isolated from a yeah, lot of they're disease. physically isolated, exactly. Yeah, so like it's if you got in there, I don't see pigs flying across oceans <laughs> every day. I think the only place pigs swim is that little island, in the Caribbean, right? So, <laughs> yeah. I, it's hard to explain. And even in their case, we attempted a bit of uh, outbreak investigation, couldn't really figure it out where or how did it come in, but it, it did. And so they had kangaroos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they jump high, I guess. But, but you know what I mean? It's, it's uh, unrewarding. Yeah. Most of the time, mm-hmm. it's just a puzzling thing, but um, it's around. And it's, I think, to be quite honestly, is that it's a, underreported and underinvestigated issue, especially where it became endemic. So we're now picking up on it because, you know, the outbreaks in North America raised the flag and now, you know, Germany reported an outbreak, Hungary reported an outbreak, uh, the Netherlands had an outbreak. So it's everywhere, right? Including South America. So it's just, we, we were bad at finding it before and now we're a bit better. 
Well, I appreciate you guys taking the time to talk about this today. I'd like to ask you guys some rapid fire questions to learn a little bit more about you. And then I'm going to ask you a golden nugget, a bit of wisdom that you've picked up in your careers and of your lives to share back with listeners. First question I have is what is the team that you guys root for in regards to sports? And I'll start with Mateus. I even want to, I even want to try to guess that maybe it's Atletico. Oh man. No, you can't say those things. No, or is it Crucero? Yes. Yeah, man. My friend hates Crucero. It's 50, 50. So that's exactly how it goes. And you, then you end up hating each other when, the, when they play, <laughs> only when they play, but then you just joke about it the whole year. But yeah, no Cruzeiro all the way. Um, you see someone walking with a Jersey around in Canada. It's likely me. There you go. <laughs> what about you, Ryan? Uh, Le Habitel. I'm a Canadians fan. So I get along okay. with my Quebec partners. <laughs> what about your bucket list place to travel? Somewhere you haven't been that you really want to go to. Ryan, what are your thoughts? Well, that's a good one. You know, I've always wanted to go to Rome. You know, I'm not a not a huge history buff, but I just find the history and, and some of the things to see in Rome would just be it would be something to see. <clears throat> but you, Mateus? I don't think I have a specific place. It's often more of um the, my bucket list happens after I go there. I'm like, man, I wish I had come here earlier. You know, this is amazing. <laughs> I don't know how it's called that list, but it's after bucket list, bucket list. <laughs> there you go. What about if you had to sing karaoke and you just had to go sing it? What's the song you're singing? Mateus. <laughs> You guys will not know this, but um, <laughs> I, I encourage you to look it up, you know, Google it. In fact, this last New Year's Eve party in Sao Paulo, the New Year was welcome while they were singing this song. It's called Evidencias or Evidence in English. Um, it's a classic, classic, classic country music uh, in Brazil that, you know, it's everyone. It doesn't matter what type of music you like. Is electronic, heavy metal or, you know, folk music. If you start singing that song, everybody will know it. So I encourage you, look it up. It's called Evidencia, and you're, you're going to start singing it out loud as well, even though you may not understand the lyrics. <laughs> For you, Ryan. Yeah, so I have, it's funny, I have a business partner. I don't I don't know if uh, if they ended up singing in Banff when they were there recently, Matthew. Oh, it sounded but, like you it. Know, <laughs> Sweet Caroline would be her go-to, right? So oh, yes, really... yep. Yeah, she sang but, Sweet Caroline. I heard about that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But anyways, no, me probably, I don't really have a genre of music I listen to, but you know what? Hotel California by the Eagles. I just, I, that's a go-to for me. I love that song. There you go. If you could grab a beer with some historical person, who would it be? Ryan. Oof. Put me on the spot for that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was, so I, I guess it's related to my career. There was a, uh, Mike Wilson at University of Guelph, he was like the original pig guru there. And I never, well, I, I guess I did meet him in his retirement, but I, I would love to have a beer with him and, and kind of see how, I mean, I guess the industry and medicine was kind of developing at the time. When you hear back some of the stories of what they did back then, you know, the cesarean c like all that sort of stuff, like I find that interesting. So maybe him. <clears throat> but you, Mateus? Man, that's a great question. I'm glad you called Ryan first because I had to say, <laughs> yeah. um, I, you know, 
you're gonna I, I think this is kind of an odd choice, but there was before Cleopatra, there was this she was not she could not be called a pharaoh because she was not a man, but her name was Hatshepsut, and she was like the ruler of Egypt. But her oh, wow. little brother was the pharaoh because he was a man, but she actually ruled it and she did amazing things, but she's unrecognized. I would die to learn from her how did she, you know, fight that patriarchal society and yet was the boss. <laughs> And be like, mm-hmm. what can we do today? But it's 3,000 years later, earn the same thing. So I'll, I'll have a beer or two with her or whatever thing they drink and try to learn <laughs> leadership skills. <laughs> oh my goodness. Given the, the types of systems that were in place in Egypt back then and how society was set up, I bet she's tough. <laughs> She'd be a very interesting person. I wonder, I wonder I know. what that would be like. Like how how do you manage this? Like and the stuff she did is amazing. Like you read about it, it's like man. And I only again I only learn about it because my my daughter has the uh, the set of uh, magazines that come in and they were talking about her. And one of those was like this is amazing. I mean a great role model for young girls, but also old men like me. <laughs> <laughs> what is your guys' go to pork dish? Who's going first on this one? <laughs> you can go first. <laughs> I love, you know what? I, I, I'm not a huge adventurous eater, but I feel like nothing beats a barbecued pork tenderloin. I, I just, huh. I would, I love that stuff. <clears throat> yeah, I don't think I can give you an answer. I'm Brazilian. I, if you ever have a chance to have a Brazilian barbecue, we barbecue any and everything and <laughs> everything, you know, and I, yeah, it's, can't pick. Sorry, I, I, I'm sorry to disappoint. I, I would say both <laughs> at the same time. But but we agree. We agree on barbecue. That's the important thing. Yeah, I, I think that's that's one of the reasons I was able to stay in Canada. Oh, we've got <laughs> barbecue is like acceptable here. <laughs> so I've got a fun tangent here that I think is is before me that I can I can really take advantage of at the moment. Ryan, you're you're Dutch, right? Yeah, that's right. All right. So you you know, all right. If there's a barbecue, uh, if you're grilling out and you have twenty Dutch families come, everyone's okay. probably bringing their own meat and cooking their own meat, right? Or if there's like four <laughs> or five, right? Yeah. All right. And then Mateus, uh, if it's Brazilian, I mean, everyone might bring something, but you're probably cooking it, slicing it, and everybody's eating each other's food, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So I had, uh, I am living with a couple individuals from Mexico, um, really good friends of the Brazilian. They're like, Hey, let's go, let's go barbecue. I'm like, cool. I go to the store and I buy a big juicy steak. And I got to tell you, I had it grilled out in forever. I'm a, I'm a junior in college. Like I was ready to eat my steak and I cooked my steak and I went and I sat down with my plate and I cut into this dinosaur of a steak. And my Brazilian buddy looks at me and goes, dude, what are you doing? Aren't you gonna share? I'm like, no, this is this is my food. He's like, dude, you're supposed to let us eat it too. And I can tell you that was such a big culture shock for me because I grew up in a Dutch town as well. It made no sense, but I can say that after years of doing barbecues with them, being able to try like 12 different meats throughout the course of three hours 
was much yeah. more enjoyable than just eating my one steak. <laughs> but that yeah. was like an out of like an, I was like, you got to be kidding me. You're going to tell me I'm going to go buy my steak and I'm going to give it to you. It was the weirdest <laughs> concept. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I like that you say that, you know, be able to share meat over the course of three hours, because that's another very important point. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. never a 12 minutes, an hour thing. You sit there and you go through the whole, you know, it start, it's a Sunday, you start at 11 and you go all the way to 8 p.m., right? Yes. That's the Brazilian it's a whole day thing. It's a commitment. It's a commitment. <laughs> it it's, it's a commitment. Well, I appreciate you guys joining. Last question would be a golden nugget. Uh, Mateus, I'll have you start. What's a, a golden nugget, a word of wisdom, something pig-related or not that you'd like to share with listeners? I, somewhere in this life, remember reading this thing, and I always thought it was interesting. It was that if you're not failing many times, it means you're not doing anything different or improving. So... I don't know. I always find that interesting. You know, it's at, you know, as a scientist, 95% of what I do is it fails. Mm-hmm. It's hard to transmit that to people and especially students because you're often, you know, used to success. And then when your life becomes a daily failure, boy, try managing that. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, that's it. If you if you need to improve, you need to try something different. You're likely f- going to fail a few times before you learn what to do or how to do it right so it's okay and celebrate it yeah <laughs> yeah you definitely do <laughs> we have a barbecue <laughs> with a barbecue <laughs> what about you ryan yeah no that that was a very good one i probably would have said something along similar lines i mean failure is how we learn right i don't think it's a bad thing so um but to say something different i guess uh you know from going along with this talk of diseases and all this risk that we have, I, I think just do the simple things right. So I see, I see so many things where we have great practices. They're simple practices, just Danish entries into barn, right? Like you can do these simple things that can protect you from a lot of these terrible things that we're talking about. So yeah, just, just do the simple things right. Well, thank you both for being guests on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very much for the invite. It was great. Yeah. Thanks. I really appreciate the experience. It was awesome. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.